Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone and welcome. This is Elia. Um, today I have Brian Willoughby with me today and um, I would say that uh, his area of expertise as I know it so <laughs> but might not I, I don't think is the only one um, is executive function and uh, I know I've done a podcast a, a few a few episodes back on executive function but as you know I like to bring some good strategies especially timely ones so that's what we're going to be talking about today, but um, just to give some background, I know Brian through AANE, um, and uh, he's done a lot of uh, presentations for AANE on executive function for all different uh, from all different lenses, I would say. But um, so I'm happy that we finally actually get to be in the same I don't want to say room, but space together. <laughs> so, <laughs> so welcome, Brian, and if you could give uh, a little background about yourself. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I, um, I'm Dr. Brian Willoughby. I am the co-director of a neuropsychology practice um, named Achieve New England, which is in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, and really in my practice, I do academic, developmental, um, and neuropsychological evaluations of children and adolescents between the ages of two to I would say about like 22 years old. Um, and so really my practice focuses on the assessment side of things, figuring out what's going on and then helping send families down a path to understanding how best to help their child or adolescent. Um, and I see kids kind of across all developmental and diagnostic categories. Um, so I see kids with autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, depression, anxiety, intellectual disabilities, medical issues. Um, and then I guess in addition to that, I am the, the co-author of, um, of a book called Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. Um, and so I've presented on that a number of times. This is a book for parents of kids that have um, slow processing speed and help how to overcome some of those processing and executive functioning weaknesses um, in daily life. Oh wow, cool! I will put that definitely in um, in, the, in the description. That was my little plug a, for my book. Yeah, no, no, that's important because there's so many good resources out there. Um, I, and well, okay, I'll step back. There are a lot of resources out there, um, and we don't always know which ones uh, are the best ones. So you kind of have to do a lot of homework, right? As, especially as a parent of a newly, let's say, diagnosed. Uh, child or as an educator. And so, you know, if I know that, you know, you put something out there, I'm going to pick yours up before maybe I pick up someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Enjoy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting that you, you're talking about um, the assessment and evaluation process. Um, I, I was looking at your website and uh, or your organization's website, and you did you do say in there that, um, you know, while uh, in many cases, evaluations will yield a specific diagnosis or diagnoses. Um, but your primary goal is just to provide, um, you know, just a, a picture of what, you know, the individual can do and needs maybe some support in and provide people like like a tailored plan for that. And I think uh, one thing I'm finding with many of the people I'm I'm interviewing is that that's, that's what it's about, is really looking at where people are at. Uh, and, you know, giving real strategies. Like I, I often joke when I work with educators, like, okay, we, the alphabet soup almost doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like, what are we seeing and what can we do for that? 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's 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 kind of the approach of our practice. We really, you know, me as a clinician, I really take a strengths and weaknesses approach when I look at um, children's functioning. So not only the things that are not going well, and maybe what the parents is coming in with to say, gosh, we're having it, we're really struggling in daily life around these particular things, um, but also use the assessment as an opportunity to highlight well, what are the things about your child that have allowed them to succeed? What has helped them kind of travel upstream, battle upstream against some of these weaknesses? Um, and so I think that's a real big focus of the assessment. Um, so I try to not get too stuck on right diagnostic categories or labeling or trying to fit kids into categories, um, but instead kind of thinking of kids from a strengths and weaknesses perspective and then tailoring um, a, a treatment plan or kind of a roadmap is how I like to think of it going forward of how best to, um, you know, treat those particular symptoms or areas of concern. Yeah, no, I like, I like the roadmap approach a lot. I've tried to use yeah. that in other, yeah, in other programs. Yeah, it's a and nice again, analogy a, for families. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, it's this journey, right? We're never, we're never going to get necessarily to, to an end destination, but we know we're going to do a lot of things along the way. Um, yeah. And we have to do one thing before we do another thing, you know, and, and so it comes into, um, I think, prioritizing needs uh, or what's like the most pressing thing needed right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And to have somebody provide this map to you too, I think that's, you know, really can be relieving for a family because there's all these things that may be going on that the family is seeing. And my job is to kind of summarize those, put those into kind of a, an understanding or a conceptualization for a family, and then really be the one to say, okay, these are like the top five things that you need to do moving forward. And I think that can serve as a big relief to families um, yeah. when they're just, you know, really grasping at straws for what to do next and, and where to go. Right. And I did say like newly diagnosed, but I think also as we move, you know, I think sometimes when, and my, my son was diagnosed later, but, um, but when you have that early diagnosis, sometimes there's kind of things in place that, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to do these things. But then once we've kind of moved past a certain, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe feels like second grade, third grade, then we start going, oh, wait, we need to relook at some of these things and kind of reassess. And, and now we're moving into a new place with learning, a new place of development. And then again, like in this, you know, fifth, sixth grade, moving into middle school. And, you know, it kind of has this escalation, I think, as a child gets older, it, it changes. Am I, what, yeah. am I right about that? Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. And I think about things in a very similar way that there's different um, challenges at different developmental periods, right? So what it looks like for a preschooler in terms of their friendships and, you know, the academic and executive function demands on a preschooler are, are relatively low. And kind of a teacher and a parent is really managing a lot of your environment um, and what goes on day to day. Um, but of course, as you get older, the demands of life start to increase. Um, and there's a pretty big shift. I would, I always say kind of like in third grade, in sixth grade, ninth grade, and in college. Those are kind of the development yeah. periods where yeah, we see yeah. kind of a big, <laughs> a big uptick in executive function demand, especially. And so, you know, I would say my practice is full of third graders, sixth graders, and ninth graders, <laughs> and college students. Um, and I think the common thread with that is the uptick in demand that happens at those developmental periods. Right. And, and so, so if we're looking at that model and we're, we're talking a little bit about the roadmap that you help, you know, families create, um, you know, I'd say the last six, seven, eight months, depending on where you live <laughs> in the country or world, right. Um, right, we've had a significant change in that roadmap, it feels like. Um, so what do you, what are your, what are you seeing now uh, or in the last, over the last six months? Yeah, I mean, right. I, I think it's almost like we have to rewrite these roadmaps at this point, because this is something, you know, that is a, the pandemic has been something that's occurred that has really, I think, thrown a lot of families um, for a loop. Um, and I think, again, that's true across different developmental periods, whether you're you know, three, whether you're, you know, 13 or whether you're 50, everybody is struggling in some way to manage this uh, pandemic. And so I think, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's taken a lot of creative and flexible thinking on the ends of families to um, overcome some of the daily challenges um, that are going on. Um, I think the remote um, learning has been something that really comes up again and again in my practice. Um, how the kind of the shift from a child having a typical school day to all of a sudden being at home full time um, has really shifted family dynamics, has shifted the dynamics of their child, you know, taking in the curriculum. Um, and I think it's also highlighted for a lot of families, at least that I see in my practice, there may have been something actually going on from a learning or developmental perspective that the parent might not have even been that aware of um, until the child was at home having to do this kind of remote learning. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more awareness, I think, from families coming in and saying, gosh, we didn't realize, you know, my child really couldn't get their thoughts down on paper. Um, and we didn't realize the significance of that until we kind of moved into this um, pandemic era. Right. And and you're not the only person I've been speaking to that has been saying that. Uh, <laughs> sure. OT has, you know, occupational therapy has been seeing the same thing. Um, I think the general, general, just something is different that I did than I expected. And again, it's being home more with, um, with your child and recognizing that something is different when you're, I think we were talking uh, with OT, you know, the morning routine is very different now than it was, you know, back in a year ago. Right. So, right. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. So what, what would, would normally be like this getting and rushing out of the house and, you know, maybe the, the process of getting dressed and eating breakfast and putting everything in the backpack is different now than it was then. So, right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's right. I think this has just been, you know, the word I use is dysregulating <laughs> because I think it really has been disruptive <laughs> to right routines. It in interferes with um, children's socialization with their peers. There's an added stress on kids and families just with health-related issues. If somebody in the family, for instance, has a pre-existing condition, um, that's an extra element. Um, it disrupts all the rituals that you typically have as well. So things like celebrating birthday parties or you know, even thinking about upcoming to Halloween, all the different, you know, activities that are included as part of a school that those kind of rituals and lead ups to certain events um, and celebrations are also disrupted. Um, and so I think that's really thrown a lot of kids and families uh, for a loop with all of those disruptions and dysregulation. Right, right. And so again, going back to that, what do we focus on right now? Right, right? Where are we at right now? Um, right. We have to think about, all, you know, where where we are as a whole, uh, I guess, society right now. Um, yeah. And so, what would what do you think right now is a shift for? Let's say if we were to break down, I like to break it down by age. In my in my head, it works better. But if we're looking at like that, the the third grader, um, what would be a a good shift from some of the executive function strategies that? You know, maybe we were doing one thing, but now we would do it a little bit differently now, given our current state. Yeah, you know, I think if if we're thinking about um, if we're thinking about kids that, for instance, have executive function weaknesses specifically, um, although a lot of these strategies and and uh, points that we probably will talk about today really can focus on, you know, kids with and without executive function weaknesses. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the things, if we think about kids that have executive function weaknesses and we think about, you know, the world being so dysregulated right now, um, I think that for, for kids that have executive function weaknesses, this is almost, you know, threefold for them. Um, because kids with executive function challenges, you know, have difficulties implementing routines. They don't have as much um, ability to uh, predict the world around them or make sense and organize the information um, in the world around them. So it's even like for somebody who doesn't have executive function weaknesses, this pandemic has been very dysregulating, but I would say it's even more so for a kid um, who has executive function weaknesses. Um, and so I think there's some key key pieces that can be implemented in day to day to try and help any child, but especially a child with EF weaknesses to kind of organize and make sense of their environment. 
Uh, okay. So, so it's interesting you say, um, you know, as I, as I was listening to you, we're talking about, um, you know, those who might have some executive function challenges as well as, uh, you know, I think a lot of the things that we expect from some kids, especially like the the group that I work with, uh, with autism, we expect a lot. And then we sometimes have to remember in context to their same aged peers, where yeah. are they at? Right. Um, yeah. But, but uh, yeah. So what are some of those, what do you think some of those pieces are that we, we need to think about given where we are now, if you're saying it's like threefold for some of our, our kiddos. Yeah, you know, I think, I think, right, exactly. When when we think about what we want to do for kids with, you know, EF weaknesses or without EF weaknesses, um, we want to help to establish, you know, I, I almost think of them as like three, three R's because my, my three main strategies that I communicate to families all begin with an R. Um, <laughs> okay. And so it's kind of a nice, easy way to remember it. Um so definitely one of the pieces would be routines. Um, and I imagine guests that you've had on here previously have talked about that. Um, this would be just kind of keeping things similar to what maybe they looked like um, in a classroom. So you talked about a third grader, for instance, what could we do for a third grader? Well, let's have that third grader set up an area in the home that kind of resembles a classroom environment. Maybe they even put some things on the wall around their desk um, and they have a place for everything. You know, their pencils go here, their notebooks are in one place. So you're kind of creating a similar um, environment to uh, a mimicking environment to what would be in a school setting. Um, Things like setting up, you know, and a lot of families have implemented this already, but setting up a whiteboard that maybe every member of the family is looking at in the morning and has a schedule um, for the day. Um, really creating the, the same routines that you would have used in the morning for getting ready for school. So, yep, we got to get up, we got to shower, we got to, you know, brush our teeth, we got to put on a new, <laughs> a new pair of clothes. <laughs> um, you know, adolescents might even struggle with that a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of adolescents who, you know, just get up in their pajama pants and right, they well, get I'm going to pause. <laughs> I think there's a lot of adults who maybe don't even identify with any of the things that I talk about still doing, <laughs> kind of like rolling out of bed and logging into Zoom. <laughs> exactly, right. You just throw a dress shirt on, but you're wearing the pajama pants. <laughs> right. Um, so you want to try and create, you know, routines and structure that happen um, every single day. And I think, again, this is especially, especially true for kids with executive function weaknesses because their frontal lobe is just not organizing their day in the way um, that other people do. So they really need, you know, a parent or, um, you know, a sibling or whoever it may be in the family to help them stay organized um, and create some of those routines. Okay. So that so we would say one would be routines then, and I love right. all of the examples. And I see really, <laughs> I see people. You know, I, I've seen posts where people have set up like the the classroom um, style in there. You know, in a little corner of the kitchen or something like that. Um, yep. And and I think that that totally makes sense. The whiteboards. I know we had Stephen Shore on here who talked about oh, having right. a main main whiteboard. Um, yep. Not you know, regardless of age, <laughs> yep. of, for everyone that's living in in the home to be able right. to kind of know where everyone is at and what they're doing. Um, and, you know, we have also seen people, I know I do it, post it on the rooms that you're using or the space that you're using to be online because like right now for us, it would be four of us online at the same time. So uh, yeah, like having post-its so that we know this room is, you know, is designated for different things. Sure. Yep. Yeah. I think those are all right. Good examples of just ways you want to manage um, an environment. And, and kind of like you're describing, this works not only for kids, but also for parents, for individuals in the family that have executive function weaknesses, those who don't, and everybody should be on a similar system. So we're not kind of singling out different family members for their related challenges. It's better <laughs> if we just create kind of a household <laughs> rule um, around right. everything. And, you know, if, if kids are getting up and showering in the morning and getting dressed and getting ready, you know, parents are on that same kind of schedule as well. Right. Um, if right. it's possible. Right. <laughs> sure, sure. Or, or whatever their routine is, at least everyone is aware of it. And we know that this is when we get those 
types of things done. I think right. uh, that totally makes sense. Okay, so what's what's R number two? <laughs> right. <laughs> so the the second the second R I think of as um, rituals, um, and I think I think we forget that there are so many rituals that just happen naturally in a classroom environment. Um, so you know, a teacher in the morning. Even it is something as simple as flicking on and off the lights five times to get a class settled. Mm-hmm. Or maybe everybody's sitting in a circle with their legs crossed, with their hands on their legs um, at the beginning of the day. Um, maybe at the end of the day, the teacher has implemented, you know, you sing a song at the end of the day to kind of a wrap up. Um, song that kind of gets everybody in the right headspace to be transitioning and and leaving to to go home. Um, so I think a lot of these these rituals are lost in the home environment. Um, and so I, I would say that you know some successes that I've heard from families are trying to implement some of these either similar rituals or coming up with their own rituals um, mm-hmm. at home. Um, so this might be things like, you know, I've heard of families doing like a five minutes of yoga in the morning. So they do kind of like a, a sun salutation in the morning where everybody in the family gets together and does that and everybody gets set for learning after that, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. five minutes of yoga. Um, you know, implementing some mindfulness strategies. So that's like meditation, taking, you know, 10 minutes for yourself during the day, kind of recentering yourself. Um being aware of your surroundings, be present with your surroundings. Um, and you could do that as kind of a group mindfulness at home or individuals could like pop in their earbuds and do that individually. And there's a ton of apps actually, you know, um, right. an app that I use is like the Calm app, which is fabulous um, that kind of do guided mindfulness and guided meditation. So it kind of takes the, the thinking out of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, great things on YouTube, and I mean, I I'm a yoga teacher, so oh great, <laughs> so, oh my gosh, so I definitely <laughs> like to incorporate those area. types of things in yeah with with uh, mindfulness, and um, it's interesting because a lot of these ritual pieces you're talking about educators have been trying to implement them in the classroom, like even before, you know, these last, uh, before 2020, um, because they're so important in just kind of, um, you know, recentering ourselves, like you said, so that we can get back. And it's not just for the students. I think everyone, especially now, needs to have like those brain breaks, the movement breaks, right? Like all that, so that we can kind of attend. So I really like um, the idea of doing it as a, a family and, uh, you know, and it could be a little bit of coaching from educators too. Like, even if they're online, I think the things you have mentioned here with routines and rituals can carry over, not, not as well as I think educators would like, but I think they can still carry over virtually, um, you know, as best as we can do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think, Right, you can teachers can create these rituals even if they're remote or when children are doing a hybrid model and they return to the classroom and just keeping every everything on the same page every day. So right, if it is you are implementing something like yoga in the morning, you know, doing that on the remote days and then doing that also on the in-person days as well. So we're kind of keeping things consistent um, so it can make for greater predictability and greater coping um, throughout. And, and I also think with the rituals on the ritual side too, it's not just the daily rituals that will help kids kind of get set for learning, um, but also some of the bigger rituals. So when we think about things like Halloween or birthday celebrations, I think there can be a tendency to be like, you know, oh, it's the pandemic, you know, it's forget about Halloween this year, <laughs> you right. know, Halloween's canceled. But it's actually <laughs> it's actually important to continue some of those traditions. So if on Halloween you typically get dressed up to go to school and hey gosh, this today is a remote day, you know, get dressed up on your remote day and and right. um, participate. And I think there's a tendency to forget how important those things are, not just to all children, but especially for any kid that has executive function weaknesses, because that structure, routine, and predictability is so critical. Right. No, no, that's 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 really important because we when we when we're in 
you know, as you're saying it, what I'm thinking is these types of rituals create community, right? And and right. connect us with the people around us, and it's it's something we kind of all have a uh, a common ground on. Um, and what we're what we're talking about here is really creating the same kind of community connections, but. We, we have to do them in a different way, which is online. Like, yeah, I'm thinking if my kids were little, uh, Halloween's a big thing for us. Um, you know, we we even did the rituals. Like, we, we like to go to Salem. And, yeah, did it look different this year? Yeah, it looks sure. very different. Um, right. <laughs> but but we still did it, right? And, and we did it in the way that we could. Um, will we dress up? Probably. And I don't know where. We'll probably <laughs> just be home and, you know, there might not be anyone at the door. But will we do it? Yeah, and maybe we'll all we're all in different places now, so maybe we'll all just say hi online quick or whatever. Um, right. I think that just maintaining or or however it works for us, maybe it's just wearing a silly T-shirt or something. But I think uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We just have to keep those things. And and it, at first, I was like, oh, maybe I won't decorate or whatever. And my daughter, and I, these are adults. What do you mean <laughs> you're not going to decorate? Like you have to decorate. <laughs> So. Yeah, I think there's a right. There's a tendency, I think, during a pandemic where, you know, your mood may be a little lower energy is feeling more lethargic to kind of retreat to exactly kind of those patterns of thinking like, oh, is it worth it this year? Right. No, what does it really matter? Anyways, <laughs> um, but we know, actually, even just from like research on treatment of both adults and kids with depression, that they're one of the biggest treatment strategies is something called um, behavioral activation. And that is basically having individuals continue to be active, continue to work out, continue to engage socially, um, because the more you kind of withdraw and retreat and have that kind of thinking like, oh, forget it this year, it's not even worth it. Um, often the greater the kind of mood related symptoms become. Um, so I think, I think it is really important to stick with some of those um, traditions yeah. that you have established um, with your family. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I think of it as, you know, maybe maybe pushing through a little bit of the um, resistance because of the current mood yep. and just getting to that place of just finding a way to make it uh, still holding the the ritual of the event, but making it, you know, making it yours in this particular time. So I exactly. I, yep. I love that. Okay. So that's number three, the third R. <laughs> so the third R, um, my, my cheesy three R's, um, but I would say is relationships. Um, mm -hmm. And this one may be even a little less obvious than the other two. I think when we think of routines and rituals, of course, we want to continue with some of those things. But you know, I think this is something that gets really lost in the mix with the pandemic is just how critical um, relationships are with teachers, with special educators, with your friends that are at school and such, and all of the interactions that go on day to day, um, how critical those are for um, ch child development. Um, and, and like, how many times have you heard you know, it's a, a child has been successful because it's the teacher that they had that year, sure. or it's, you know, the, the tutor that actually stepped in once a week. And, and that's what saved, you know, my child's learning this year. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's been a lot trickier to do, um, given the pandemic. Um, and so you want to try and create opportunities for kids to have relationships um, and to continue those relationships. Even, you know, one of my friends, for instance, the other day, she has a time um, with her son that she does uh, silent reading. And he's just sitting and reading a book. And she was saying, gosh, it's hard for him to kind of stay focused during this time. He tends to be a little distractible. And so what she implemented was with another friend of hers, her daughter gets on Zoom, and they actually just do silent reading together. They do a little introduction and catch up together. Then they just sit on the actual Zoom call mm -hmm. where they're both silent reading. And then they have kind of a close-up session after about 15 minutes or, or so. 
And it's something that kind of, to me, seemed initially a little bit silly. I'm like, oh, silent reading over Zoom. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's, the, what's, the, what's the point of that? Um, but it, I think that kind of speaks to how just having other people around and the relationships that you have with your peers are so critical to keep you motivated, to help with your coping, to keep you organized, and to keep you engaged in, especially in academic activities that come up during the day. Yeah, no, and you 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 um you kind of hit triggered two things that uh, that I thought of. One is, uh, you know, when when teaching, let's say older students, older, I mean, like you know, maybe third grade and up again. Uh, but you know, the, that independent reading time that you would you know set aside for students, uh, there was something really. I know when it was in my classroom, it was something really sweet. I'm going to use that word about yeah. them all engaging, you know, whether they were in their little nook or whether they were at their desk where everyone was sort of quiet, but they were all seeing each other doing that same thing. And so I really like that strategy. It's, it was, they created their own independent reading time, um, online, you know, online. Uh, and I think that's, that's great. And it reminds me of working with a college student, uh, who, you know, she went away. She missed some of her friends. Um, but what they would do is her and her best friend would seriously just FaceTime, but not actually, you know, they were doing their homework, which was very different for each of them. And, <laughs> you know, just being in the same space that like they would do before they went away. Yeah. Uh, and then but still being able to check in with each other and be like, oh, wow, I just saw this thing, you know, online or whatever. Uh, right. And and to me, again, I, I thought I was like, oh, huh, I, I never would have thought of doing that myself, which I, you know, which or people watching movies together. Like that's another thing yep. that's, you know, um, so. So, again, yeah, I think using those strategies to, you know, stay in relationship with people is great. Yeah. And I think also, I think around that too, like for, for teachers to also be thinking about how to even modify assignments um, or some aspects of the curriculum to encourage those things. So, mm. so for instance, like if you have an assignment on um, thinking about um, what it was like growing up in the seventies or something like that. And mm -hmm. they have to do a little bit of historical research of like what, you know, what did schools look like during this time? What were the cost of certain things? Well, okay, let's touch base actually with, you know, aunt Diane about this because she actually grew up in the seventies. And so I want you to interview um, somebody in your life or somebody in your family um, that could give some insight and then report back to the class. So encouraging actually those relationships within the curriculum, I also think can be beneficial um, so that there's just more of that kind of daily stimulation of um, interaction um, for kids and adolescents. Yeah, no, I really, I really like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think those those three things definitely seem like they <laughs> you know the funny thing is is right academics are not are not in here right right <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know with the exception of you you could use some of them as part of um you know classroom strategies or whatever or different assignments like like you just mentioned with interviewing someone um but it's so interesting that these are all really sort of the infrastructure for setting up learning or just daily living. Yeah, I think that's what was kind of interesting, even when I, I was just thinking about this podcast and thinking about the things that I wanted to talk about, you know, and I was thinking about, okay, what's my traditional, what are my go-to strategies to bolster executive functioning skills for children and adolescents? So I kind of went back and looked at a couple of the talks that I'd given before and I was thinking, gosh, these are just not all that helpful during this particular time. And, and it, going back and thinking about just those strategies like, okay, you know, let's come up with a to-do list or, you know, let's try and keep things in the same place at the same time at your desk. And, and yeah, some of those can be integrated into the, I guess, the routines heading. Um, but those traditional kind of academic strategies or executive functioning strategies that would bolster your functioning in, you know, the typical world um, just don't seem to be quite as relevant now. Um, and I think we need to almost take a bit of a step back and look bigger picture. 
um, like with the routines, the rituals and relationships, those are kind of big, big ticket items that we never really had to think about until something like this um, happened in our communities. Right. Right. And, and so the other thing I think about now, as, you, as we're saying that, we, and a lot of what we've talked about here, some of it involves using technology. And right. um, technology, I know from my son, has been a, a very helpful, you know, executive functioning tool um, in all <laughs> different ways. Um, how, how do you think, if we're looking at how we're using technology now, and it's very, it's varied for sure, uh, what things are helpful and what things do you think might be <laughs> hindering, um, you know, the, the executive function autonomy piece? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I think in terms of technology that is helpful, you know, I think a lot of um, what has happened uh, now remotely is that there are you know different folders for different subject areas there it's a schedule that gets sent out um, you know either on that day or the week of to kind of outline it and preview everything that's happening during that week so i think in some ways this this flip to remote learning or flip to hybrid learning has um has really encouraged uh, teachers and educators and parents to really kind of be organized in their thinking and how they're categorizing information and how they're communicating schedules to kids. Um, so I think in, in that sense, that that can be very helpful um, and has been somewhat of a benefit because now, you know, I used to recommend, for instance, teachers implementing a schedule for a child that has executive functioning weaknesses or, inter, uh, you know, interjecting a, a preview of the lesson um, mm -hmm. before the lesson actually begins. Um, and now I think a lot of teachers and parents are just kind of doing that naturally because it's critical during the mm -hmm. pandemic. So that's where I feel like it, it's, it's helped in that, in that regard. Um, I also think there's kind of a novelty to all this that is maybe wearing off a little bit for some families <laughs> um, where kids are like, oh, cool. You know, I get to be on my computer all day and I get to Zoom with my teacher and, you know, I can mute things and I can... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think there was a novelty to that. Um, I worry, though, to some extent that that is, is now wearing off um, yeah. as kids have just become so accustomed to this remote, um, remote learning. Yeah. And they learn really fast, like technology especially seems to, I mean, I guess because many of them, especially our younger ones, have grown up with technology around them all the time. So right the clicking and the, you know, once they kind of look at the platform that's being used, because, you know, there's only so many versions of, you know, an online, uh, you know, chat group or whatever, they, they all kind of eventually start to run the same. So people are, uh, you know, kids particularly are like, oh, it's this type of interface. So I just kind right. of <laughs> click around, you know, they kind of know, and they'll teach, you know, they can teach us uh, adults about, you know, where to find things or how to change a background or all these kind of fun things yep. uh, but yeah the, the novelty you know also I think there were people talking about uh, I forget who I was talking with but the kind of looking at all the boxes um, you know of the students or whoever you're talking to are we losing some of the uh, the, the sort of like this the social communication piece of sure of, you know, are we missing what people look like and their facial expressions? Are we missing some of that because we have this, um, you know, sort of an artificial layer between us and, and humans, the other humans we're talking to? <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that's the downside to the technology piece for sure is this um, loss of right, personal connection, reading nonverbal cues. Um, and there, there was actually some interesting research that came out kind of looking at, you know, I think there's been this resounding um, impression of doing this online, both adults with work and kids with school, that it's been more stressful in a lot of ways to do Zoom calls. And um, so some researchers have looked into this to say, well, why is it that Zoom um, or remote or online kind of interactions are more stressful? Um, and the two things that they found are kind of interesting. One is that, 
you are spending a lot of time during the day actually looking at yourself. Um, mm. So there's more self-awareness of how yeah, you look. I saw that today, um, <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> and that's stressful, right? To be looking at yeah. this little box of yourself <laughs> and what does your face look like when you laugh or you communicate? And that awareness actually can create a lot of stress. Um, you know, I think especially for adolescents who are kind of in a period of development where they're trying to figure out who they are and, you know, they're very, very monitoring of how they um, act in relation to others. And that can be very, very stressful sure. um, for an adolescent to be dealing with. And then the second reason they said was um, that you just, it's stressful because you can't read nonverbal. So you're spending all of this time trying to process what the other person is thinking and doing because you maybe can't see their hands or you can't see mm. the way their legs are crossed. And so it requires a lot more mental energy in order to understand the social dynamic of what's actually going on. Um, so I think that's, that leads to stressors <laughs> and is right. you know, definitely a big downside to, to doing that every single day. I think they were calling it Zoom fatigue was the other, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and we're not moving, like at least in the past you could, you know, in a traditional, let's say office setting, you would, or even a classroom, students would go from room to room, you know, you go from, maybe you are in meetings all day, but you're going from conference room to conference room at least, um, and seeing people and being able to interact in the hallways on the way, uh, right. we're, we're we've lost, you know, a lot of that. Um, so finding new ways to connect. I know some educators are setting up, um, I guess what we would say maybe in a, in a college setting, like, like office hours, you know, for their yep. younger students so that they can build some of that one-on-one um, -on -one time, which I think is a really uh, nice idea as well. Right. Yeah. That speaks to that relationship piece again right. of just all these little nuances that happen during your day that help to provide, you know, some consistency. It continues to elevate your mood. Um, it helps you process information. Um, and when it's as soon as we yank those relationships out of your daily life, um, it can have a real impact on how you're you know, accessing your education, how you're interacting with other people, how you're feeling about yourself. So the impact is pretty broad reaching. Yeah. And so now I think I'm going to ask you a big question right now, because, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, all the things we've been talking about all make total sense to me uh, for, for all students, um, as well as those, you know, again, I work with the autistic population. Um, and one of the things when I was doing like a just a general overview of, you know, what executive function is, um, you know, it's been brought to my attention that executive function is not one of the diagnostic criteria for autism, but yes. <laughs> working with many, many people with autism, sure. it is, it can be a really huge, um, right? Like a huge component to where the deficit is. Right. Uh, so, so can you help, uh, help shed some light on like that connection there? Sure. Yeah, so executive functioning difficulties really span diagnostic categories. Um, so while executive function difficulties are very, very common in kids that have autism spectrum disorders, they're also common in kids that have ADHD, they're common in kids that have anxiety disorders, they're common in major depressive disorder, um, they're seen in more severe psychiatric difficulties like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, they're seen amongst kids that have intellectual and other um, neurodevelopmental difficulties. Um, so it's actually how I think of executive function is more it's like a underlying cognitive weakness that spans diagnostic categories rather than is a particular symptom that helps to identify or classify um, a child or adolescent. Um, and there's been some really cool research that came out of actually Mass General Hospital um, where they took samples of adults actually that had major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and anxiety, and they looked at their genetic makeup. And lo and behold, they found that across all of those different diagnostic groups, there are some similar genetic markers across all of those groups. So we used to think like, oh, well, maybe there's kind of a gene for bipolar disorder or genes for autism spectrum. What we're learning is actually across all of those different categories, there's some shared genetic variants. 
And so what researchers have suggested is that, well, maybe the commonality between all of those are things that are cognitive styles, like executive function weaknesses. Maybe there's genes that actually code for that versus that are actually coding for the diagnosis itself. Um, so I think that speaks to this idea that EF-related issues are really common amongst all um, you know, diagnostic categories. Right. No, I thank you for that. I think sure. um, that sheds a lot of light on so many, <laughs> so many things, because I've worked with many students um, that fall into all of those like different buckets, so to speak. Um, alphabet soup, I kind of call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but yeah. And that is it is a common thread. And so I would love um, if you could send me a, a link to that research, because I would be yeah, really sure. interested in learning more about that. Uh, and I think some uh, some of the people listening in would be interested to learn more about that as well. Um, so yeah, so uh, is there anything else that you would suggest as far as strategies are concerned? I like to always, I know we've talked about many, if there's anything else you feel missing that, um, whether we have a parent listening in or a, a teacher or other educator uh, or, or, or an adult who's saying, oh, maybe I could try just one more thing. What, what yeah. would that be? So I think... You know, one of the strategies that I might recommend is not always just relying on, you know, the parent or the teacher to to help with executive function support, but really to look elsewhere to see, you know, are there experts, for instance, um, in your area that know exactly what to do in these particular um, situations. Um, and so that's kind of where there have, there's been a lot of talk, I think, especially in Massachusetts, um, there's been a big boom in, in um, tutors or coaches called executive function tutors or executive function coaches. So I would encourage families if there's real struggles with this kind of implementing executive function supports throughout the day, if a child is having a really difficult time on the remote learning side, um, we're really seeing a lot of difficulties, you know, tackling large projects, problems with the writing process, um, trouble getting your thoughts on paper, organizing throughout the day. If those are, you know, really rising to the surface and becoming more pronounced, then I would enlist the support of an expert. Um, and there's a lot of great groups out there that do this kind of tutoring. Um, you know, there's Beyond Booksmart, there's Signet Education, there's the Institute for Learning and Development. Um, these are some of the groups in Massachusetts that I've worked with before that are fabulous. Um, and, you know, reaching out to those groups, either for, I know some groups are doing mostly remote at this point, but even just a check-in once a week with an executive function coach that is saying, hey, you know, what's going on? How are you tackling your homework? What projects do we have coming up here? Um, you know, what writing assignments do you have and how can I help you organize your thinking to get your thoughts down on paper for this? Um, so that's that would be one of my big suggestions is not just trying to do this all on your own, is that right. there are there are folks out there who do this um, for a living um, and to have a weekly session with one of those individuals could be really, really beneficial, especially during this time. Yeah, I think and, and I, that's I think a benefit to being online right now is we have I mean, my my audience is national and slightly international. Um, but, you know, I think being able to have access to resources all over that we may not have had access to before because we're remote. And even if I think it's changing the paradigm of how we're able to work with people from all different modalities uh, and it's opened up the world to other people, yeah. which I think is a really great, uh, a really great thing. And I know also A&E does um, coaching as well. And, and, and it is, um, you know, it, 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 it mostly focuses and it kind of ends up focusing mostly on executive function type of strategies um, yep. and teaching those tools. I mean, I also think you mentioned something earlier that we can't uh, lose sight of is um, what are, what are our students and uh, individuals who have been struggling with executive functioning? What are they already doing that has right. been helpful? And I think you said that early on um, because we want to acknowledge those and say, okay, if that's been working for you, <laughs> hold on right. to that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. 
right? It might take some reevaluation of, oh, this was actually something I didn't even know that was that beneficial. But <laughs> when I kind right. of look back and think about it, and, and that's something that a coach could actually help with too, just identifying some of those things. Um, you know, a coach could, could look at, well, how do, how do you approach your homework? And a student may say, well, this is what I typically do. I start with the, you know, easy things first and get them out of the way. And I make a checklist. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, if the coach could then say, well, that's a great strategy, let's, let's keep going with that. So it's not always about teaching new strategies, but like you said, maybe identifying what has worked in the past and what you should continue to do, um, especially in the remote age of learning. Great. So thank you so much for being with me today. I really, I've learned a lot and hopefully um, our audience has uh, learned a lot. And, and there are some, there are so many things in here that we can like start implementing right away, which I think is great. We like easy, <laughs> quick hits, right, I strategies. call them. <laughs> yeah, the quick ones and then stuff to look forward to, right? Like things that we can, you know, look uh, strive to kind of put in place um, when we can. And so I think those both types are really helpful. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think where else can people find you? I know you mentioned AchieveNewEngland.com, right? And Yeah, achieve- yep. People can always find me right at Achieve. Um, there's like a, a tab. Um, if somebody's interested in having a neuropsychological assessment or wants to get to the bottom of some of the difficulties they might be seeing in their child or adolescent that's been happening, at home, um, look closer at executive functioning concerns. We do those kinds of assessments. So there's a contact page um, or a contact tab on our webpage at achievenewengland.com. So folks can submit an inquiry and um, I see all of those. So if if somebody has some questions or um, concerns or wants to set up an appointment or a consultation, um, I'm always happy um, to do that. That's the best. That's probably the best way to reach me. Cool. And then your book that you mentioned, can you mention it again and where you can find it? <laughs> yeah. So my book is, uh, it's called uh, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. And you can just Google that. It's, um, I believe, probably the easiest place to buy it from is Amazon. Of um, course. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other dealers out there. Um, it's published through Guilford Press. Um, so if, if folks have um, children or adolescents who are just kind of struggling to keep up with the curriculum or haven't identified uh, processing speed weakness already and parents are just looking to understand a little bit more um, or a lot more about processing speed. <laughs> there's tons of strategies in there for classroom and home environment, college planning, um, and then a lot also on just what causes processing speed weaknesses. Um, so families can use that as kind of a useful um, resource moving forward. Cool. So a book we can keep going back to over yeah, if, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Yes. Excellent. I always laugh. It's about processing speed because it took my co-author and I about five years to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's uh, not, uh, you know, not exactly what the publisher was super happy about, but we got it done and <laughs> maybe it, our processing right? speed wasn't so, uh, so strong after all. <laughs> but, but with that said, it might just take people longer, right? That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. We got the job done. It just took us longer to get there. <laughs> exactly. 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 Well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.